Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Welcome back to Dear Prudence once again. And as always, I am your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Mallory Ortberg. With me in the studio today is Ben Gullard. Ben Gullard is an artist who lives in New York City. We went to high school together, and I used to drive him to Wendy's once a week. He also once built a giant washing machine for the set of the musical Cats. Ben, hello. Welcome. (laughs) Hey, Mallory. Hi. How's it going? It's going well. How are you? Good. Yeah, I also agree that it's going well. Good. I'm glad to hear that. I, I love the washing yeah. machine so much. Um, and I I feel like we've talked about this before, but I can't remember. Did it actually work or was it just... It, that's a no, silly question. Uh, of course it didn't work. Also, yeah, because the conceit is that the set of cats is a junkyard. So I don't think a reasonable person would throw away a working washing machine. So it, and I don't it, think the cats had enough right, engineering it, it ability to not, get it like, to work. fit in with the world building if it had been a it working was, it, washing machine. Totally. It was mostly meant for cats to crawl in, out of, on top of. How long did it take you to build yeah. it? About a day, actually, That's to it. be honest. To build like a, yeah. a big washing machine <laughs> I mean, that people could crawl. I'm sorry, cats, people shaped cats, people sized cats could crawl into. Yeah, made out of steel and wood. And then I passed it along to the, the, the scenic department for painting and we were all set. That's Fantastic. Then the, then the cats came. Yeah. <laughs> then the cats came. Then the war started. Um, I, I'm so <laughs> glad to have you on the show. It, it just feels like I, I wish our listeners could kind of understand the like profound, just like fondness that's straining at the boundaries of my heart right now. Just, I mean, I met you when I think you were 15 and I was 16. Yeah, that sounds about right. And like we've just been. We were working on a Neil Simon play together. We were working on a Neil Simon play together. And uh, you once made me go to your car to get you a bagel. <laughs> I did do that. It was very nice of you to do that. Um, and you've just <laughs> one of my, been one of my best friends ever since. And, and uh, I, I think had we known, had someone been able to take us through time at the time and say, Ben and Mallory, here's your future. Um, you'll be giving advice together on a podcast someday. I, I think that would have right. been. I don't know that we knew that podcasts were going to exist, so I think we would have had to have that explained no, to us. I, I, no, I, I think I would have been weeping for two reasons that, number one, time travel is possible, and mm-hmm. also just my <laughs> extreme love for you, and that we're going to have such a good, beautiful friendship. Yeah, yeah, and it has been a, a rich and beautiful and meaningful friendship, and uh, I'm so glad to have you on the show today and just to like hear your thoughts on how everyone could live the best possible version of their life. Um, yeah, and let's, I had a, let's heal some babies. A question I wanted to go over with you before we dive into the specific questions, which was, Mm -hmm. how do you, as a human being, respond to criticism internally? Not, um, you know, if someone comes to you, someone who cares about you or wants the best for you and offers you constructive feedback, um, and there's the sort of sane, settled, adjusted part of yourself that can say, oh, I'm sorry, thank you for letting me know, I I can, you Mm -hmm. know, take these steps to correct it to make sure I won't do it again in the future, and then... Mm -hmm. Do you, even after you've done the sort of reasonable uh, accommodation, then feel like, okay, but now I have to jump into the sun? Uh, Or is that just me? Yeah, for me, it's, uh, I go subterranean. Okay. The the, the sense of self-shame and uh, that I must be the worst person in the world. Yeah, I think that I should just hide away and do the world a favor and just never emerge ever again. You should have been a pair of claws. Um, yeah, it's it's hard. I, I, I find myself sometimes if I get like a very reasonable piece of feedback, I will think, OK, I can apologize. I can do this differently. Uh-huh. I can move uh-huh. on. What do I do with this enormous desire to hide myself in a volcano? Because that's not a reasonable right. response. You can't let it dictate your actions. You certainly can't like show that to the person who has gently corrected you uh, because that's too much for them to have to handle. Um, mm-hmm. But it is. uh it is an extreme challenge that you can receive really moderate feedback and outside your face says things like, thank you uh, for that feedback. I will do things differently in the future. I'm so sorry if I hurt you. Um, and then inside you're just thinking I should become an astronaut to the past and live among rocks. Right. And it wasn't without years of therapy that I even realized that that was happening. Instead, it would turn into so I would receive light criticism from somebody and I would say, oh, yeah, that I, I can adjust my behavior. And then 
hours later wonder why the Pret-a-Manger that I was in is the worst place in the world. And I wish that I was never born. Yes. And why is this egg salad sandwich so disappointing? Yeah, why does this represent my failure to be a human? Exactly. Yes. No. And and that was smart. You really got the jump on me. I, um, I I find it funny. I'm always recommending therapy to people who write into the column. Um, and mm-hmm. just recently, myself went back to therapy. I hadn't been in like six years, and I've been Good back stuff. in it for about two months. And it is remarkable. Oh, um, not to talk too much about my own personal life, but I was just like, oh, that really is a good idea. Oh, I re- mm-hmm. I really should be recommending this to people. And how nice to be doing it myself. This uh, this is a really good idea. I wasn't just making that up, um, which is right. sort of funny the way that uh, we will catch ourselves being like, well, yeah, it's a good idea, but totally. I'm not going to go to the same place Even every on Tuesday. my way to go, yeah, even on my way to go see my therapist, I'm like, ugh, what a this pain again? in the fucking ass this is. <laughs> this person wants to sit and listen to my problems for an hour. <laughs> ugh. No one has ever been as put ugh. upon as I. Right. I could be watching SVU by now. Uh, I, listeners of the show should be aware that um, somehow I did not know that you had never seen Law & Order SVU. Not a, n- not a drip. And not until a drop. I was in New York this last week and I demanded that you watch it with mm-hmm. me. Um, and it was such a beautiful experience to get you to see the like liturgy that is the Law & Order episode. It's um, vast. It's like the stations of the cross. Universe. Like every episode yeah. follows the same beats and the same people. And I never uh-huh. guess who really did it. I always have a hard time with it. And we got to see the one with um, right. uh, Carol Burnett and Matthew Lillard, which I think is oh, the greatest goodness. casting combination ever, yeah. ever of all time. Yeah. Okay. If that didn't get an Emmy, it should. I'm sure someone got one. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. So before we just end up talking about like our youthful memories and TV shows mm-hmm. that we like to watch together, I think we should try to dive into some of these questions um, and thematically appropriately. Uh, the first question is about cats. You have some experience yeah. with cats. I have some experience oh, with man. cats. Um, I didn't even see that lead in. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good at segueing. I'm not going to lie to you. Um, yeah. So the subject of this one is just wife thinks I love cat more than her. Dear Prudence, my wife who is wonderful and I love very much, thinks that I love our cat more than her. The problem is I think she might be right. I mean, if there were a fire and I could only choose to save one, it would be my wife. Of course, she is human. Or if she suddenly developed a severe allergy to cats, the cat would have to go. But on a day-to-day basis, I find myself wanting to just observe the cat for inordinate amounts of time, think just about anything the cat does is cute, including biting me. Sometimes when I get home, I embrace the cat before I embrace my wife. I grew up with a cat at home, and after that one passed away, I didn't have one for about 12 years. We just got this cat about a year ago, and I'm hoping this passes with time. But what if it doesn't? What should I do? I think my favorite part of this letter was the part that felt like an alien trying to write like a person, which was, of course I would save my wife, the human (laughs) <laughs> which is just not how we normally refer to our partners. Like, Just to be clear, yeah. in the handbook, right? As am I. In my order of operations. She yes. is human. I am human. Together, we human. My prime directive is wife. <laughs> my second directive is cat. Yes. My third directive Perhaps. is advice. Perhaps, yeah. Um. I'm not sure if prime directive is wife. <laughs> Please resolve Should program. have been the title of this, yeah. This no, but this is really uh, this is. It doesn't sound as dire as it could be, right? It doesn't sound like your wife no. is like I'm about to leave. Uh, it's just a question of are there any little adjustments I can make? Um, right. And in hearing this, in reading it, I, I think that it, even though this person loves their cat so dearly, I don't think it's about the cat. <laughs> Yeah. I think it's about spending time alone. Right. I don't think that there is something that the cat is offering that is like, if we put two things on the table, like the way that cat spends dinner with me versus the way that wife spends dinner with me. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I'm referring to them just as their basic nouns. Sure. Um, wife and cat. Two of the basic elements. I don't think that there's like a, a runoff. Sure. I think it's just that this person enjoys spending time with another being and probably their own thoughts. Yeah, man. I mean, your wife could bite you if you find biting adorable. Ask her to sure. bite you. Yeah. And I think that the the wife is probably picking up on you, you seem to 
enjoy spending more time with the cat than you enjoy spending time with me. Right. And I think I'd be more troubled with this if the letter gave off a tone of like, there is something wrong in my marriage with my wife, or I do sort of want to avoid her because there's something about our relationship or the way that she wants intimacy from me that I don't want to give her. And that doesn't seem Mm -hmm. to be the case. Um, So uh, that's good news, right? That's not like something's wrong with our marriage and the cat is like this poor totem of of like how I can't interact with her. Um, And it's a little pat to say that like, we treat animals sort of the way that we secretly wish we could treat somebody else, right? Because we don't have to worry about seeming foolish or embarrassing ourselves in front of an animal. We can just be uh-huh. incredibly affectionate and childish um, and childlike. Um, and there's no fear that the response will be like, that's weird or that's too much or that's inappropriate. Right. Um, so, right. you know, certainly I would encourage you to bring some of that delight that you have with your cat, which is totally fine. Like, it doesn't sound like you're weirdly obsessed with your cat. You just think your cat's adorable. But, um, yeah, like, maybe embrace your wife before you embrace the cat. I don't think that that would be too hard for you to do. I don't think that that would be, like, a burden. You'd still get to play with the cat. And, like, you know, the cat's not going to be like, oh, the wife's moved ahead. You know, your cat's (laughs) not going to mind. Right. I would also, I, I, I would say investigate... The way that your partner has brought this up, because right. in a certain situation, if it was just a flippant sort of, oh, man, it looks like you love that cat more than you love me. Sure. Um, that's one thing. Or if it truly is. Uh, listen, it seems like that there's a lot of needs that I have that are not getting met. And it seems like you're uninterested and maybe that they're getting projected onto this other being that we share a house with. Uh, I think that there's probably a lot of answers in figuring out the context of how your partner brought this up right? and yeah. why. Like you say that you want to just like stare at your cat for a long time. I, I get that. Like cats are interesting, especially young cats. They're fun to watch. But if you're like sitting on the couch for an hour, um, not connecting with your wife, not having a conversation, mm-hmm. not saying, hey, let's go to see a movie or go out to dinner sometime this week. And you're just like, right. no, 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 quiet. The cat is chasing, like, a, a dot of sunlight on the wall. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, if that's happening a ton, like, knock it back. The cat's not going anywhere. Uh, pay attention right. to your wife. Yeah, and, I, th- I think that there's also a, a really interesting parallel of how people will, and I've heard this both with uh, friends of mine and, like, hearing it, overhearing it, people at restaurants and saying, like, wow, it seems like you're way more interested in that phone of yours than you are in me. And it's really not about that this person is fascinated by this piece of technology in front of them. It's just that they aren't being able to give attention to the person that's right in front of them. Right. And I, Yeah. 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 And you do not have to choose between your wife and your cat. You get to love your cat as much as you want. Um, but mm-hmm. I think just to think on a daily basis, are you making choices that kind of prioritize your relationship with your wife? Um, or are you sort of thinking of her as, well, she's always here. Um but this cat is chasing its tail. So that's the real urgent thing that needs my attention. Um, but I think this uh, this is going to work out great. Like you love your wife. You think she's wonderful. Um, you want her to feel loved. You have the ability to slightly modify your behavior so that she doesn't feel like she has to compete with a cat for your attention. Um, I think there's a high likelihood that you guys will be able to figure this out uh, quickly, easily and well. So that's the good news. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm glad we got to start off with something easy. Do you uh, Do you want to read the next one for us? Yeah, sure. All right. This one is titled Son Leaving the Nest. Dear Prudence, I have a 21-year-old son who would like to live at home over the summer break from college. His college apartment is two and a half hours away, and most of his friends will be returning to their hometowns to live with their parents and work summer jobs. My son is a hard worker. He works part-time during the school year and gets good grades, and in the summer works full-time at a physically demanding job. The problem is my husband, who is not my son's biological dad, strongly believes he is at a turning point, being 21, and should not live at home anymore. My son and I are sad about this. Me, because I love having my son around, and he, because his high school sweetheart, lives five minutes from our home and will also be home for the summer. They attend different universities. My husband feels that if my son wants to continue to try and make his relationship with her work, he should do so as an adult from his own apartment 
We are willing to subsidize rent for an apartment in our hometown for the summer, but now my son has decided to live with her at her mom's house. I worry that this will end badly. Is it ridiculous for him to live at his girlfriend's mom's house with her? Are we being too hard on him by not letting him live at home for the summer? What do you think? Are they being too hard on him? Oh, man, there's a lot to unpack here. The part that jumped out at me uh, was Mm. that my husband, who is not my son's father, um, thinks that my son shouldn't live at home anymore. And I'm sad about that. And I'm kind of curious, why did your husband make that decision? Like, why is he making that call? Yeah, I think that that's a huge insight to the letter writer's relationship with her their husband yeah yeah i mean like i i think your son sounds like a great kid um i i don't think that there's like an objectively right or wrong answer i think it is great for a 21 year old to stay at home with their parents over the summer if if that's what works for everyone and it's also fine if a parent said you know you're 21 i'd like you to get your own place um Mm -hmm. but so so it's not like there's something wrong with him doing either of those things but if you don't agree with your husband's decision um it seems a little bit like he kind of made this call unilaterally and if you disagree if you would like you know it's not uncommon for college students to come home for the summer um it's not as if he is like um doing anything really like age inappropriate or that's any sort of sign that he's not thriving um if you would like him to live at home with you and you want to offer him your home for the summer i i think you can push for that and advocate for that and um that's Absolutely. that's not something you have to abdicate to your husband even if he, i don't know like in what capacity he's acted as a stepfather to your child or how long he's been in the picture but you know that's your kid and if you would like him to live at home with you and it works for you you can you can do that not that you should say like fuck off husband this is happening shut up but you right. I, you don't have to just agree with his decision yeah it seems to have been phrased as this is what the deal is and my son and I are both bummed about this. Which yeah, is and that shouldn't be how you guys make decisions, I don't tough. think. Yeah. Um, no. But to answer your other question, uh, is it ridiculous for him to live at his girlfriend's mom's house or are we being really hard on him? Um, who's to say, you know? Maybe it's mm. going to go great. Maybe things will be difficult and uncomfortable. Maybe they'll break up. I don't know. It's not... It's not something that I think would require your intervention. Like maybe it's a bad decision, but at 21, you get to start making some bad decisions and figuring out what works and what doesn't. So in the sense that, no, I don't think you should be worried. Like maybe it's not a situation you wholly approve of. Maybe it's not the smartest thing in the world that you, in, in your opinion, but it's not damaging to him. It's not hurting anyone. Um, and if it's a mistake, he he gets to learn that. Um, but yeah, right. I, don't, I, don't I think, think, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I think that this is one of those situations where, yeah, it could end badly. It could end terribly. Mm -hmm. But still for your son's experience of being a human being, it's ultimately going to be an experience for him that hopefully he will learn something from. Um, Or it might work out great, which would also be awesome. Yeah, Yeah. I don't think that this is one of those things where uh, not wanting something bad to happen means that there shouldn't be a possibility of something bad happening. Right. No, and I think that's really, I think there's the sort of two things to bear in mind. One of which is your son is moving into a part of his life where ideally he will not be living with you in the long term. And that's going to be hard and sad. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I assume your goal is for him to, you know, establish an adult and independent life, even though that will be hard and sad for you as his parent. Um, and this may be the beginning of it. The other thing mm-hmm. is how you and your husband make decisions together. And even if you end up saying we're still going to stick to this either we'll subsidize an apartment or he can find somewhere else to live this summer that that's not the issue to me so much as you say are we being too hard on him it doesn't sound like you're being too hard on him it sounds like your husband made a decision and you didn't feel like you could disagree and so i would urge you to kind of have more conversations with your husband even difficult ones about like hey like here's how i would like to be available to our son i mean my son as he becomes an adult like i feel really comfortable if he ever needs to in his 20s like live at home for six months or a year i wanted that to be available how do you feel about that and if your husband's like if i had my druthers he would only see us at christmas and uh fourth of july and call every other week and he never stays in our home again like then you guys should argue about that because you should 
you know, you yeah. both should have an opinion about it as a married couple. And you, as your son's mother, I think, should ha- have more weight in that conversation. Yeah. And I think that that's spot on with bringing up the idea of like, yeah, you should argue about that. Like there should be a, an ongoing debate. Yeah. Because also, like, as you bring up in 10 years when uh, your son, say, has like student loans or something like that, that you will appreciate having had a, a history of figuring out these tough decisions of like, do we help him out with the student loans? Uh, just how these things in the future are going to go. Because right. once you're son daughter child is out of the house that doesn't mean that the hard decisions are going to stop right and it doesn't mean they're done or that they'll never possibly live with you again especially like in this economy (laughs) people come home people come home it's hard to to live on your own so yeah keep having those conversations and good luck and i and i would say don't worry too much about him living with his uh Girlfriend's family, because even if that seems like a queasy idea for a adult that has already had a lot of life experiences, that he's going to have to figure that out one way or the other. Right. For himself. Yeah. And at the very least, you're not the parent who has to, like, deal with having your kid and your kid's partner, like, living with you, which I think will probably be a little stressful for this other mother. So... uh Continuing in the theme of, of family, the next uh, the next question is is just about uh, the subject line is navigating my gender around my hesitant family. Uh, dear Prudence, I'm an AMAB non-binary person who's basically out as non-binary in most facets of my personal life, and I'm gradually working towards being as out as I safely can in my professional life. My problem is my parents. I love them, and they're extremely supportive and loving. But as a child, they did and said things that made me repress my queerness. When I first came out, things were rocky between us, but they've mostly come around and say that they want me to be happy. Yet, it seems like they mostly mean that in the abstract. When I bring up things I would le- I'd like to change in order to be happy, changing my name, using gender-neutral pronouns, I'm often met with resistance. I go by my middle name, but my first name is also my dad's and grandfather's. I hate my first name, always have, and used to dread having to correct my teachers when I was in school. I can't imagine a professional life where I go by that name. When I bring up wanting to change it, my parents say they're heartbroken that they loved that name, put a lot of thought into it, and that it honors my relatives. If I try to explain my feelings, they tend to deflect, my dad, or break down and say they must be the worst parent ever, my mom. I realize they didn't mean anything by giving me that name, and that I can change my name if I want to without their permission. But my worry is about having to have these battles with them for each thing I choose to do for myself, and it makes me question sometimes how much they really support me. Furthermore, it's bringing back to the surface some of these feelings I had as a child of having to repress who I was in their presence. I want to maintain a good relationship with them because I love them dearly. But how do I navigate this without jeopardizing that relationship or feeling overwhelmed and defeated? Oh, man, oh, man. Man, we just keep leveling up in terms of complexity. Yeah. Um, oh, and just uh, for our readers, to uh, just a quick definition of terms, AMAB or AMAB is a, uh, a term that just refers to being assigned male at birth. Um, so just in, in case anyone was wondering what AMAB non-binary uh, was getting thrown out as, it's a person who is assigned a, a male gender at birth and now does not identify uh, particularly as male or female. Um, and uh, that's just uh, what this letter writer is referring to. Um, this is, uh, these letters are so often challenging. I think there's a certain clarity that can come with having like an out and out hostile or unsupportive family. Um, Mm -hmm. and when you get into the sort of trickier weeds of they love me, they're trying to understand me. I think sometimes they say they're more supportive than they are. And I'm trying to parse, you know, how much of this is just an emotional reaction that they're not working very hard to manage uh, because they're really surprised and how much of it is they're being a little disingenuous when they claim to be supportive. And that's really mm-hmm. difficult to parse. Um, and it can feel really overwhelming. It's a lot of emotional work. Um, and sometimes I think, you know, just the, the letter writer mentions feeling overwhelmed and defeated at the end. I, I hear that. Like sometimes it can feel exhausting and there can even be a, some desire on some level of, I wish you would say or do something so bad that I could kind of push you away for a while because this feels really hard. Because um, it's totally. painful, right, to say to your parents, to say to somebody, um, I've never connected with this name. This is not a name that represents who I am. And, and this name means a lot to me. And to hear that hurts me. That feels like a blow against me. That feels like you are rejecting your heritage, your family background, and all the love and care and hopes and dreams we built up for you before you were born. Um, that's hard to hear. That's hard to take on. And mm. I, I think if nothing else... Um, I hope you can encourage your parents to um, 
if they don't have a like a, a trans and gender nonconforming affirming therapist that they can see to go to like a PFLAG meeting um, to talk to other parents of non-binary kids, somebody that they can kind of talk about this to who's not the child in question. Because um, sometimes these responses are so heavy that to give it to the kid is like, no, 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 that's not appropriate. Like you need to share those big anxieties, right. big fears, big resentments with somebody else um, who's not saying this is me. Right. Mm hmm. Yeah, and I also think that uh, this person's parents could benefit from realizing that they're not alone in these particular struggles. Right. I mean, a sense that this is not um, unprecedented. This is not something that they are only going through with their kid. This is something that happens. Um, and, and again, like there are a lot of ways in this which this is really unique to a queer and non-binary experience and also ways in which this is what happens when you have children who become adults um, is the things right. that you thought, man, I want my kid to have this, this and that. So I know that they're happy, secure and connected to me. And your mm -hmm. child, as they become an adult, are going to have different ideas about that. And it does not mean that they are rejecting you or, or what you want for them or your love for them. It means that you've done a good job of raising a person um, who says, this is me. This is the direction I want to go in. This is how I want to see and be seen in the world. Um, so, you know, specifically, I think for the, bar, the, the, the part about saying, I'm going to change my name and, and, and your parents say that they're heartbroken. You know, I think to respond with some compassion, but also firmness, which is to say, you know, I'm sorry you're heartbroken. That sounds difficult. And I hope you can find somebody to talk to you about that. Um, I need you to know this is not heartbreaking to me. This is not a rejection of any of your dreams or hopes for me. Um, mm -hmm. I do still honor my relatives. Um, I, I do appreciate the fact that you put a lot of thought into naming me before I was born. Um, but, you know, here's the deal. When you thought all those things before I was born, you had not yet met me. Um, right. This was hypothetical. And um, I am an adult now, and this is the name that I feel best represents me. So I, I, I need you to know this is not a rejection of you or your dreams. Um, and I understand that parts of it may be hard for you, but I also just really want you to know I'm thrilled. I'm very happy. And if I were mm -hmm. to keep my first name, it would not be fun, fulfilling, exciting, restful, peaceful for me. It would feel like I was doing something for you to make you happy while denying a part of who I am. And I know you don't really want that for me. I hope you don't really want that for me. Um, right. And, and hopefully and I, that I, will go a long way towards helping them kind of understand where you're coming from. Yeah. And I think in situations like this, certainly from my own experience, that in having those conversations with parents that feel like, oh, man, you've drastically changed your life and you're doing all this stuff that I never imagined that you would ever do. Um, is to remind them that you're still their kid. Right. And that you are exactly the same person from the moment you were born. You are now <laughs> still that same person. I mean, no matter what sort of life experiences that you've gone through, what different choices you make, what you've discovered about yourself, that you're still the same human being. Right. And despite whatever preconceived notions that they have about who you are to them or who they want to see when they look at their child – that you are still the same and that you value their relationship and that you're thinking about how to navigate this so that it doesn't ruin that relationship. Um, but also reminding them, yeah, I mean, that, that as a human being goes through life and makes changes, that they are still the same person that they were when they were born. Right. I would say, too, um, one thing that's important to bear in mind, it's really hard, especially if you are close-ish with your parents, if they say things like, I'm heartbroken, it's hard mm. not to really feel that profoundly. Um, and right. it's hard to say, okay, uh, you can be heartbroken, and that is okay, and I don't have to fix it or feel responsible for it. It's a lot easier to do that with a friend um, or somebody who did not give mm. birth to you. When your parents say, I'm heartbroken, it feels like something you have to fix, and it's just not. And, and a thing that I would encourage you to really push back on, um, you know, the deflecting with your dad, that's a little... You know, you can always redirect or come back to something. If your mom says, I must be the worst parent ever, I think you get to call that out a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. Gently, you don't have to say, like, don't be so dramatic, mother. Um, but you can say, right. like, um, you're not. Uh, this is very clearly not the result of a failure of parenting. 
Um, Mm -hmm. You were not a a fortune teller. You could not see into the future. Um, You did the best you could with the name that you wanted to give me. I love you and I affirm you. I'm happy with the way that I was raised. It wasn't perfect. It wasn't flawless. But, um, you know, I've turned into a person I'm really happy with. Um, And when I tell you I want to change my name because I'm happy and proud of my identity and you say that you must be a bad parent, that suggests to me that... um, you are maybe having more difficulty with my identity than you're willing to admit. Um, so, yeah, I, I think you can kind of gently call that out. And just if your mom goes there, like goes back to that mm-hmm. well to just say, nope, you're not. Um, and right. if you need help yeah, getting reassurance on that, mom, I hope you go see a therapist. And I think also being able to draw lines and I'm not going to respond to that. So if you feel that way, you're going to have to rephrase it differently so that we can talk about yes. what you're feeling. Exactly. Yeah, I'm not here to... The conversation we are having right now is not reassure mom she's a good mom. Um, right. That is a different conversation. So, yeah, these are going to be ongoing, lifelong conversations. And I encourage you to, you know, pick your battles. Think about how much time and energy you can give a conversation. It is okay if things are like getting a little heated or they're kind of making it about them in a way that feels uh, unhelpful to just say, you know, Things are getting really heated. Let's pause on this uh, and, and talk about mm-hmm. it again later. You can do that. You can take little breaks. Um, you don't always have to, like, communicate everything to them at once. Um, but, yeah, I think to just bear in mind, to make it really clear, this is not a statement about you guys. I'm not, like, pulling a referendum on the state of your parenting. I'm telling you who I underst- understand myself to be as an adult. Um, and I understand that that might not always be incredibly easy to understand, uh, but... Um, I want you to at least listen with an open mind and not always respond immediately with, I'm heartbroken. I must have failed. What does this say about me? Right. And I think you bring up an excellent point of, man, this is getting hard. Let's take a break from this. Because I think particularly in parent and uh, child relationships that it can feel like a cage match of emotional labor at times. Yeah. And it's it's easy to get caught up in that, but I think that also realizing, like, okay, nobody's going anywhere. We're not deciding if we never want to speak to each other ever again. This is going to be an ongoing thing. It right. does not need to get solved right now at this moment. Otherwise, I'm, you know, everyone gets obliterated or something like that. Right. Yeah. Cause uh, it seems like right now they are meeting the baseline requirements of staying in a relationship with you, right? Which is that even though a lot of their em- emotional responses are not appropriate, they are not like trying to deny your personhood. They're not trying to, um, like force you into some sort of reparative therapy. Like they're they're treating you like a human being. Um, and so, you know, as long as you guys are always meeting those baselines, you can you can say, look, it's not going to happen tomorrow. Um, mm-hmm. And I can go. Yeah, and I think take breaks on the side if I need to. And I think what this letter writer has also described is uh, their parents' primary reactions, like sure. the first reactions off the top of their head. And that that is a certainly an interesting place to start but also realizing that that will not always be like that and that if the conversation gets deeper and keeps going that these kind of uh yeah very quick emotional reactions will then develop into hopefully more conversation right now we are going to tackle voicemails which is something i keep promising myself i'm going to do and then i keep forgetting so i'm very very proud that i remembered it this time we've got a couple of uh, thorny ones, uh, and I think uh, our producer Audrey is going to play the first one for us, uh, and we will get to figure out what we want to say about it. Hello, my name is Matt. Uh, I have a bit of a problem. Uh, six years ago, a very dear friend of mine uh, was incarcerated in a federal prison for possession and distribution of child pornography. Obviously, this is morally reprehensible. Uh, I did speak with him a little bit about it before he was incarcerated. He couldn't say much because there was always the possibility that I would be subpoenaed. But the gist of it is that he he says he's not a pedophile. He says that his therapist says he's not a pedophile. And that it was a combination of sort of hubris and uh, active uh, vigilantes on the internet that, that sort of got him into the situation. He says he was sexualized at a very young age. And he had pictures of people that were the age he was when he obtained the pictures, which I guess is an explanation that makes sense. My question is, um, <clears throat> I've been supportive of him while he's been incarcerated. 
but I, I just don't know moving forward how I feel about this. Um, uh, I plan on having children with my husband and I, I don't know, you know, I, I don't think he'll molest them, but you know, I, maybe you could help me sort this out. Am I, am I doing the right thing? If I cut him off, should I, should I try to, you know, be a loving friend? Um, should I drill down and get a better explanation? Um, thanks. Man. Oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. So I think part of what I found really interesting about the conversation that this caller had with their friend um, was that sort of fascinating um, claim that their therapist had apparently officially declared them not a pedophile, which is something that generally therapists don't do. Um, right. I, I have a hard time believing this therapist said to your friend, I know you are not a pedophile. Um, that's not something that therapists would usually claim to know or not know. Um, and, and I think that kind of appeal to authority of, don't worry, someone has, you know, taken a look at the depths of my soul and given me a, a, an official, not a pedophile certificate. Um, I don't. I, I I don't think that happened. And and more to the yeah. point, I don't think it's as it's as serious a distinction as your friend wants it to be, right? Um, because I think what your friend wants is to say, "I'm not that kind of person." So mm-hmm. there's some sort of other explanation. And he didn't go to jail for being a pedophile. He went, I'm sorry, he didn't go to prison for being a pedophile. That's not what he was charged with. He was charged with possession and distribution of child porn. So f- the distinction of is he a pedophile or is he not, kind of not the point. The point is, was there evidence that suggested he possessed and distributed child porn? And it sounds like the answer was unequivocally yes. And that matters, I think, a lot more um, than whether or not he is willing to identify with a specific term. Like what he did is more important than how he understands himself to be categorically. Right. Or that that supersedes whatever has happened with the courts or whatever a jury decided or whatever a judge decided that, that somehow the person who ostensibly kind of knows his most private thoughts gives him a pass yeah i don't think that that flies yeah and and again you know i i am not going to say to you you must do or not do the following thing um but i i I do just want to point out in order for meaningful redemption rehabilitation change to take place there has to be a profound reckoning um with the truth um and thus far, it does not seem like your friend's response to being caught, arrested, tried for, um, convicted, and incarcerated uh, of, of child pornography possession and distribution, his response has not primarily been um, radical honesty, radical change, um, and, and that's worrying. That is worrying. I I don't want to say like no one can ever be rehabilitated or that everyone who commits a sex crime must be, you know, completely cut off from society forever. Um, I I do want to allow for the possibility and the hope of meaningful change. Um, But that's I I don't think this looks like that right now. Um, And and that whole thing about, you know, how he it sounds like himself was offended against um, possibly uh, assaulted or molested as a young person. And that's awful. And that's really sad. And that's also um, not a good reason to possess and distribute child pornography. Yeah, it seems like from the letter writers descriptions of the conversation that they've had with this uh, friend, that the friend does not fully acknowledge that what he did has severe real life 
human rights violations associated with it, right. violence toward minors associated with it, um, that it is morally reprehensible on its own, that his uh, what, the phrase vigilanteism was an act of some sort of violence against another person, perhaps. Yeah. Um, and doesn't seem to fully acknowledge that or own up to the idea that, yeah, those were things that I did. Yeah, yeah. And I think when it comes down to having contact with your possible future children, I, I, I agree. I don't think that this person would molest them or even come close to having. Uh, I, I don't know that I yeah. feel confident making that kind of prediction. Um, well, yeah, it's also it's not worth. one of those things where you're like, eh, yeah, 98.8 percent. Yeah, I, I think. Sorry. I just, yeah, I just I, I remember feeling weird just hearing that sentence. I'm pretty sure or something like I'm almost certain that my friend wouldn't molest my kids. And that's just a, it's a hell of a sentence, right. man. Um, right. And, you know, I just think it's it's really worth pointing out that um, child pornography is not a victimless crime. Like, um, you know, if he was put away for six years or longer, he probably had a pretty extensive collection um, and. You know, there were real minors, real children um, who were violated and abused in the creation of that pornography. Um, And he, you know, participated in that and created a demand for it. So um, he may not have actively molested a child in like in IRL, but um, this was not a sort of harmless alternative to molestation. And um, right. That's meaningful. And, and and this person seems to not acknowledge or realize or have internalized that those are actual realities. Right. And that those are actual crimes that they committed. Yep. And whether or not they are a pedophile is, again, like you said, not part of the discussion here. Right. It, it's part of the crimes that they did commit and whether they recognize whether or not that those were something that they truly did and did with knowledge that it was harming other people. Yep. Yep. And and I think I was having a conversation with a, a friend of mine just outside the studio earlier today, um, kind of talking about how I wanted to think about and address this letter. Um, and they were talking about a, a person who had done something not nearly on this scale, but they had done something, had gotten caught, had admitted to it, and then had tried to sort of reassure or explain to the person who was, you know, saying you did this was, Yes, I did it, but I just want you to know I'm not the kind of person who does this. Um, and my friend's response <laughs> was really, uh, you know, by definition, you are the kind of person that does this. And and I think that that is such the wrong response when we are caught in our wrongdoing to say, yes, I did this, but I'm not the kind of person who did it. Um, if you did it, you are the kind of person who did it because you're the person who did it. And trying mm-hmm. to create a sort of meaningless distinction between a pedophile and simply a person who possesses and distributes child pornography, that is the wrong response. That is the right. wrong response to have. So, you know, caller, um, I, 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 if you do have children with your husband at some point in your life, I think, as always, um, it is a good idea to prioritize your children's well-being and safety above all else um, and to consider that... Um, it would not be some sort of harsh punishment or unnecessary isolation to say you can't be around my children or you can't be alone with my children or if you and I get together, it's going to be uh, not with my children present. Like I think to think of it in terms of like why would you want to put your friend in a situation um, where he could be uh, tempted to sexualize minors? Like um, it would be an act of kindness not to bring him around children. Um, certainly like, yeah. Um, and then the other thing is I think what it sounded like, I'm not clear on when or whether this person's about to be released, but it sounded like sort of moving forward. There's some kind of change coming up. Possibly he will be released at some point in the future. And that's sort of what's bringing up these questions of how do I deal with this moving forward? And I think what you have to do is have some of the conversations you've previously avoided with your friend. Um, Again, I'm not saying you have to write to him tomorrow and say, you are cut off from me on this earth and, and I, I wish you nothing but ill. But I, I do think um, you you do have to have that conversation of, you know, are you taking responsibility for this? What does responsibility look like in this situation? Um, 
How, how are you going to behave differently in the future? Um, what are your regrets? How do you now understand the harm that you've caused? Um, and, and, and what are you going to do to meaningfully live the rest of your life in such a way um, that it does not look like what the previous era of your life looked like? And you need to ask your friend those hard questions. And you can say them saying, I, I, I love you, you're a human being. Um, but you do need to say them. And I think your two options are not either keep this guy in your life and pretend not to know the things that you know, or cut him out entirely um, and, and you know, negate whatever connection you guys had in the past. I think you need to ask the hard questions. And if it gets to a point where you feel like he's not willing or able to be honest or to commit to living differently, you may then need to say, you know, that would be a baseline that I would require for a continued relationship. So until you are willing and able to get honest about this, I can't be in contact with you. Um, and I think that that would be, you, sh- you should open yourself up to that possibility. I think that that is an okay thing that might happen. Um, but first and foremost, you got to ask the tough questions that you kind of let him fob off six years ago. Yeah, man. Okay, well, um, let's tackle the last voicemail of the day. Um, we can mm-hmm. end on a slightly lighter note. Uh, this is this is great, actually. I'm really excited to listen to this one. Hey, Prudence. I am um, wondering about dinnertime conversation with my husband. He loses his appetite really easily if there's any kind of um, difficult subject or gross subject that comes up. And this kind of came to a head the other day because um, we don't see each other very often. I uh, I work nine to five and he works um, five to two eleven o'clock, and so. I make him a really late dinner and then go to bed. And so the only time we get to really see each other is when he's eating dinner at 11 o'clock at night. And a few days ago, I mentioned the um, the Mensa's product that has just come out and how ridiculous it was. And he got so angry at me for bringing up this product for the, the whatchamacallit, the, the, the glue for your vagina. And he got really mad. And... I don't think he should have gotten mad, um, but I know that he doesn't like hearing about, like, bodily fluids or anything when he's eating. Is it something that I need to stop talking about if there's a current issue and it's potentially gross when he's eating? How can I how can I have a conversation with him about current events um, and remember to not bring up something that could potentially be gross? So... Ben, I looked up vaginal glue as the result of this voicemail, and it sounds like you did not. So you are still like tabula rasa when it comes to vaginal glue. Um, Yeah, I I am a clean slate when it comes to vaginal glue. So I, it is a, it is allegedly a product that was created uh, by a chiropractor named Daniel Dops. Um, to me, it reads like, uh, you know, a relatively on its face joke or troll. Um, but Mm -hmm. people at present are discussing it as if it may be an actual product. Um, it it is basically a glue stick, uh, for a vagina. So you, the idea is to glue your vagina shut while you are menstruating. Um, uh, you know, ridding yourself of the need for pads or tampons or a diva cup. Um, he claims that there is some way to dissolve the glue at the end of the day, uh, and thereby release all the sort of like a built up menstrual fluid. Um, and then you can like later reapply, uh, he like I just want to read a little bit by the way of the sort of Facebook post he made about it um, oh my god and it's just as follows yes I am a man and you as a woman should have come up with a better solution than diapers and plugs but you didn't reason being women are focused on and distracted by your period 25% of the time making them far less productive than they could be women tend to be more creative than men but their period that stifles them and plays with their head uh where else? Uh, when men see seals in the blood and fluids, they are sterile as long as they are inside the body, and all the grossness is from the leakage into undergarments, the drying effects of air, and the bacteria contamination that comes along with inserting tampon, plugs, and pads. My dream is to have women free of the distractions, the psychological issues that goes along with their periods, and see that they develop. So, like, just to be clear, this is not a case of, like, this woman is, like, occasionally discussing, like, 
straightforward menstrual products and and her husband is doing that sort of like oh gross periods that that sometimes people do um this is like a pretty out there goof um yeah i agree with your assessment that this is a troll yeah yeah i I mean or a or a a grad school art project that went Concept art project. That yeah, went horribly yeah, this wrong is performance art. Yeah, um, this is totally performance. But art. I, I kind of loved, by the way, the the caller at the end was like, "How am I supposed to talk about current events if he's so sensitive?" That. As if like the menses is this like very important issue we're all discussing at the dinner pa- table, and it's really unreasonable of her husband to demand that she lay off. Like, right? Everyone around the studios keeps talking about these menses. Yeah. Yeah, it's like no, I can't go anywhere without hearing about these menses. I, I'm I'm kind of on your husband's side. Like, that's pretty gross. Like, I think it's funny. Like, I'd enjoy talking about it, but some people get made mm-hmm. easily nauseous. And I think hearing like some whacked out chiropractor talk about like pretty nonsensical, medically inaccurate descriptions of fluids and plugs um, is, is sort of gross. And uh, you right. only get to see your husband at dinner, and it's a pretty reasonable request. Um, and then the, and the it, description of the it, vaginal glue is pretty gross. Like, I'm just, I'm, yeah. I'm willing to go there. I think that guy was being kind of gross. Like, I, I understand why your husband was like, can we not talk about this weirdo? Totally. Uh, and also as, <laughs> am I allowed to talk about current events? I don't, yeah, I, I, I agree with that assessment that this, there's plenty of other things to talk about. I gotta be me, man. And, I gotta be me. Don't stifle me, man. Right. <laughs> You're like the vaginal also, glue for my mouth. Oh, my God. I'm so Mallory. sorry. I'm so sorry. But I just imagined the, the caller kind of going there. Yeah. But also, it, it seems like as the caller is describing this, that this is not the first instance of bringing up something that her husband has found unpalatable during his dinner, which is at 11 p.m. on a very tough work schedule and seems like, I don't know, at least in my opinion, a very sacred time to like enjoy eating food with your significant other. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't know how else to say, it, but yeah, there's just plenty of other things to talk about. Yeah. I, and I think that your husband's request of like, Hey, don't bring up poop while I'm eating lasagna. I think that that's within reason. Yeah. And so of course, like I'm kind of curious cause it, it, you know, the, the caller definitely sounded put upon and i feel like there there may be something else going on here i don't know exactly what it is but it certainly sounds like this this caller feels stifled and put upon and i'm curious mm-hmm. like if there's something else going on maybe with your guys's opposing work schedules maybe you resent being the one who makes dinner every night i don't know what else is going on but it, it seems like your husband's made a fairly reasonable request and your response is like well then can i talk about anything uh, and it's like, yeah, right. you can. So is there something else going on here? Are you do you resent your husband for something else? Are you frustrated with the work schedules? Do you feel like he often doesn't think things are funny that you think are funny and you kind of resent his sense of humor because you wish he understood you better? Like, yeah, I, I think his request is reasonable and you should try to accommodate it. And I think you should ask yourself, is there something else you're mad about here? Um, and if so, what is it? And how could you bring it up with your husband without the sort of deflection of vaginal glue right which and yeah and i think your assessment of uh that there's probably something going on with the senses of humor and the 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 nature of interest and inquiry into the world around us that's not quite lining up with the caller's husband that i think is uh that's worth talking about that's worth getting into and it's totally fine if it's not if it doesn't completely match up i mean that that's uh, something I've learned from having longtime partnerships is that that it's totally okay if you don't have the same sense of humor. But there are sometimes pressure points where that comes up, and yeah, it's a it's a way of dealing fairly and uh, without feeling like the other person's telling you to shut up. So, yeah, I think we've kind of addressed that as best we can. Uh, I just want to point out I've been sort of clicking around on the Menzies website. Um, while we've been having this conversation. And some further evidence that this is, again, somebody making some jokes is uh, if you go to the contact section of the website, it says, our products are still in development and will be available soon. Ask your favorite mm-hmm. retailer to stock Menzies. Um, so there's no way to buy them. Uh, but this guy does want us to like wander into a Walgreens and be like, do you guys sell vaginal right. lipstick yet? Uh, and and just, Well, I, that's a totally different product. 
Uh, that's what he's that's what he calls it he says it's vaginal vaginal lipstick, lipstick? If, if you don't oh. mind i'd love to read actually a little bit of the description from the website um okay great. which is Let's... as follows menses is a new patented idea idea is in all caps and with three exclamation points uh, a natural approach to feminine health menses is a proprietary combination of amino acids and natural oils in a lipstick applicator it is not mm. a glue the labia minora are normally attracted to each other and they stick together a little bit when applied, menses only enhances that attraction and creates a temporary seal strong enough to retain menstrual fluids inside in the same location that a tampon would. The seal washes away with soap or urine, and everything empties into the toilet or shower. Dry off and reapply menses feminine lipstick. Done. Safe and secure. No touch, no leaks. Better for the environment. No surprises at the worst time. Menses and the labia form a perfect seal such that there is no sensation of stretching or pulling with normal activity. You can compare it to chewing with your mouth closed. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, leaving aside the fact that chiropractors don't have to go to medical school, I think uh, you would still have enough of a sense of working knowledge of the human anatomy that you would know that urine does not come out through the vagina and therefore would not be able to um, dissolve the seal on your labia minora. Um, this right. is. This I is also a like it that, there, that that part of the product hasn't quite been fully developed yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the. We can get the lips closed, but eh, it's kind of up to you how you. Yeah, you're, you, it's going to be, you know, you make the call how you're going to dissolve the seal. Uh, ben, thank you Mallory. so much for going on this journey with me. This has been so much fun. This has been yeah. so many things. Um, I, thank you. I hope we have been uh, a solve upon some of the souls in the world. I, I hope that we have too. Ooh, th- this reminds me, as you recall, uh, a couple weeks ago I had Ashley Ford on the show. And she mm-hmm. decided to tell me how much money she makes every year. And I made a pledge that I was going to start asking all my guests if they want to tell me how much money they make every year. Um, so I'm going to keep doing that. You don't have to. If you're not comfortable, just say you're yeah. not comfortable. But do you want to tell me how much money you make every year? Can I give you a ballpark? Yes, you can. It's uh, somewhere between 40000 and I would say on a good year, mm, $2.3 Ben, I'm not you're saying that I earned jokes that. Jokes at me. That's just the ballpark. You really, I really thought we were going to get a, a window in there. That was very well done. Thank you for that. No, actually, no. I make around fifty-four and a half thousand dollars a year. Man, um, that I mean, that is between forty thousand and two and a half million. That is absolutely true. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And you live in New York City. Is that uh, is that workable? Does it? Is it? Is it? Does, do you wish you I, made more? I mean, I, I'm sure we all wish we made more money, but like, does it feel like, oh yeah, I can do this? Um, I wish that I made more money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wish that I hit that, that, uh, magical 75,000, uh, happiness, like the, the happiness plateau. Yes. If you know what I'm talking about. I, I do. Oh yeah. Sorry. I realized not, maybe not everyone knows that, uh, you know, a couple years ago, some sort of study came out that suggests that like while money does not bring happiness, there is a, a yearly income that sort of brings with it the greatest increase in personal satisfaction just because it can help keep you from being, you know, constantly chased down by creditors. And that number is Mm $75,000 a year. So Mm -hmm. money can't buy you happiness, but $75,000 can. Right. And I think with the the combination of uh, part-time jobs and side gigs and the variety of work that I do, that Mm -hmm. I'm actually, I'm pretty happy with that. Mm -hmm. Like that even living in New York City and how expensive it can be here. uh, Yeah, I'm overjoyed. Well, I wouldn't change a thing. Thank you so much for sharing that information with us. Uh, sure. Uh, and once again, for um, following us down the Menses rabbit hole. Uh, have a fabulous rest of the day, and I can't wait to see you again soon. You too. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Audrey Dilling. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. If you like the show, please go to iTunes and write us a review. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location. And at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short. 30 seconds, a minute tops. Hello, you've reached Dan. I'm not available to answer your call right now. Please leave a message and I'll return your call as soon as I can. 
Hi, Dan. This is Mallory Ortberg. Uh, I'm the host of a radio show called Dear Prudence. Uh, and I was calling because this is the number listed on the website for a product known as Menses. Um, and I was calling because I was really curious to know a little bit more about the history of the development of this product, um, how you came up with the idea, uh, what your plans are for making it available to consumers uh, in the future, uh, and just in general, kind of curious to know about your process. Um, I'm sure you're already inundated with requests for interviews. But uh, if you are available and willing to discuss this, uh, please give me a call back at your earliest convenience. Thanks so much. Hope you're having a great day. Bye.